Take your Bibles and open them uh, with, to, with me to Matthew 18. And let's read something that's really inspired. Um, it comes from uh, the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at verse 21. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. You follow as I read. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him... The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, the message that's contained in this parable is huge. It's, it's huge because it, it, it takes us, the parable takes us to the heart and soul of Christianity. Christianity's message is one of forgiveness. And that's what this parable is about, forgiveness. The, 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 the law of unlimited forgiveness is one of the essential laws of the kingdom. Um, one of my heroes, J.C. Ryle, said the most the most prized, the most precious possession of the Christian is forgiveness. I'll tell you this. It is certainly the message that my soul needs to hear. That I am forgiven. But even having said that little, I've already confused you. I, I've confused you because there's two kinds of forgiveness, as you probably already know. There's a vertical forgiveness... And then there's a horizontal forgiveness. And this parable is about both of those. My challenge in in teaching this passage is to keep those things separate in your mind while at the same time (laughs) connecting them. Connecting them in the way that reflects the genius of Jesus in this parable. Now, we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at it. I, I'm sure we could take longer, uh, but we're going to try to we're going to try to get this whole thing in in two weeks, and we're going to start where Jesus started, and he started 
with the vertical one. That is the vertical forgiveness. It's that forgiveness that, um, that produces peace between me and God. It's the, it's the forgiveness that changes my eternal status. It's the forgiveness that changes my eternal destiny. It's the forgiveness on which the other forgiveness in the second half of this parable is based. It's the one, it's the forgiveness that quiets all my fears. What fears? My fears of when it becomes my turn to stand before this God. You know, um, I I, want to quickly point out that this parable that Jesus tells comes in response to a question that was put to him by Peter. Peter, uh, that's in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Peter wanted to enter into this dialogue, uh, this theological debate with Jesus on the subject of forgiveness. What he wanted to know is what limits were to be imposed on his generosity. Or um, what, what, is, what is the acceptable minimum? Just how little will satisfy God? Um, and, and you'll notice, I think, that Peter's question concerns only the horizontal forgiveness. Peter is concerned about the forgiveness among people. And, and I can assure you that Jesus is concerned about that too. But he comes to that next, in the second half of the parable. And that's what we'll look at next week. But what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus doesn't start with the horizontal forgiveness. He starts with the horizontal, uh, with the vertical forgiveness. And, and I'm saying to you, that that is the first concern of the soul. Am I forgiven? Now, I want to look at this parable under three headings. The king, the debt, and the response. That is, the response of the king to the debt and the debtor. So the king, the debt, and the response. We'll look at, look at it under those categories. First of all, let's look at the king. This is the first of the parables uh, where God is described as being a king. That means two or three things, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, the fact that he is described as a king. First of all, here's, here's what it first means. It means that if he's a king, then I'm a servant. And that's what this, this, this parable tells you. Now, I, I have told you this in the past, um, that in the Greek language, there are two words that are translated servant. There is the word diakonos, which really describes a hired uh, person who, who, uh, who gets a wage um, somewhat like a butler, you know, in a house. Then there's another word in the Greek language that's translated servant. It is the word doulos. A doulos does not get wages. A doulos is property. A doulos is owned. A doulos, in a word, is a slave. Every time the Apostle Paul gets ready to describe himself in his relationship to Jesus Christ, he never uses the word diakonos. He always uses the word doulos. And here's the point. The word that's found in this parable is doulos. It's not describing a diakonos who gets wages and, you know. No, no, no. He's he's describing a slave. He's describing property. Now, that's the first thing we learn. Secondly, as such, that is... If, um, if we're describing or being described as slaves, um, we are told then that as a doulos, 
um, that I must appear and give an account. Now, apparently, this servant had forgotten that he needed to do that. But be that as it may, the, the doulos is accountable. Um, the New Testament talks about being accountable for every deed done in the flesh. Well, the king is in charge and he creates a day of accounting. That's, that's what we're being told here. The king is in charge and he creates this day of accounting. Um, fully within his rights and his prerogatives as king, he creates a day where all the doulosses need to meet with him and give an account. Now, we're told in verse 24 that this doulos is brought to the king. Apparently, he wouldn't come any other way, but certainly this meeting that he's about to have with the king is not something he's looking forward to. Um, it's not going to be pleasant. And so he is somewhat dreading this meeting, but it's the meeting where he is going to have to give an account for every deed that he has done in the flesh. And he would just as soon not attend. But he is brought. Now, guys... um, 21st century modern people feel the same way about this meeting that this slave felt. Uh, There is nothing that is so hated by a 21st century modern Westerner than the idea that I'm accountable to some heavenly king. And there has been every form of philosophical and theological gymnastic uh, designed to try and eliminate this idea that there is a responsibility and an accountability that I must perform before some kind of heavenly king. No, 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 no. I don't want anything to do with that kind of business. I want to answer to nobody but me. I want my own rules. So to be reminded by some preacher that there is an accounting, that makes me cringe. Or it makes me angry, or maybe both. Um, because I don't like this idea. And, 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 the, and the non-Christian world thinks that every time Christianity says something about this, that it's a power play. That is, it's our attempt to, to keep them under control. Um, I don't want freedom. I want autonomy. Those are different. Autonomy is self-rule. And to be told that there's a king to whom I must report and give an accounting? mm -mm. Mm -mm. But to to have what I want, that is in terms of autonomy, then I've got to deny two things. I've got to deny, number one, that I'm a slave. And I've got to deny, number two, that he's a king. (laughs) And if I can do that, then I can go out and live any old way I want. I'm not a slave and he's not a king. And then I put myself in his place and I become answerable to no one. Now, there's a third thing. There's a third feature of this relationship that I I, want to point out because I think in terms of this relationship of king and doulos, we see the nature of our sin. Now, that's going to take some explaining, so let let me try to do that. Let's say that I say to you this morning, 
You know, in my past, I've really done some very bad things. And you sit out there and you say, um, well, what did you do? I mean, uh, did you have an affair? And I say, oh, no, no, it's worse than that. Well, then, then are you a pedophile? And I say, no, 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 it's, uh, it's much worse than that. Because you see, what I've done, all in my effort to avoid this meeting, not, not this meeting, but this meeting that's being described in the parable, all in my effort to avoid this meeting, I have sought to remove the idea that a God exists to whom I'm answerable. And then I have sought to put me in his place. You see, guys, what, what I'm saying is that the nature of our sin is seen in this relationship between a king and a slave. Because the slave takes things that do not belong to him. And he uses them, not for the king's benefit, but for his own benefit. And not only that, he uses those things against the king. That's the nature of my sin. That I take things that belong not to me, and I use them for me and against the king. Which brings us to the second heading of the debt. Guys, at this meeting that the king calls for with all of his doulasses, um, it's revealed that um, this slave has an enormous debt. The slave is exposed. The extent of his crime is dragged out into the light. The size of the debt is unfathomable. It's 10,000 talents of gold. You know, um, in preparing for this, the commentaries, they tickle me in, in that they, they, they go to this great effort to try and represent this amount in 21st century monetary terms. And they all have a different sum depending on the age of the commentary. But um, I, I want to suggest to you that it doesn't, it, it's not even worth our time to try and figure out how much this really represents. But let me, give you, let me give you a comparison. Do you remember in the Old Testament there was a king by the name of Solomon? Solomon was the wisest and the richest of all Israel's kings. And on one occasion, this is recorded in 1 Kings 10. On one occasion, he is visited by the queen of the south. He is vis visited by the queen of Sheba. And she brings a gift. And part of her gift is gold. And she brings 120 talents of gold. From one head of state to another head of state, 120 talents of gold. We're told in the same chapter in verse 14 that Solomon, through his emissaries, imported annually 666 talents of gold. Add it up. 786 talents of gold. This parable is about 10,000 talents of gold. You see, guys, the issue is not how much this represents in 21st century monetary terms. The issue is that the debt was so enormous that it was too great to be imagined, much less 
to be ever paid back. The debt that the doulos has before the king is unpayable. Now listen, this is where we've gotten. A slave stands before a king owing a debt that he cannot pay. At this point in the parable, in verse 25, the king says, um, sell him, sell his wife, sell his children. What good's that going to do? I mean, how, how much money do you think that'll generate? Certainly not enough to pay off the debt. But you see, the point isn't, that isn't the point of verse 25. The point is that no one, including the slave, quibbles about the right of the king to pass judgment. Nor does the slave make any objections to the justice of the sentence. What you're seeing in verse 25 on display is simply the, the, the absolute rights and prerogatives of the king over the debtor. Now guys, let me pause long enough to, to say just this. Because I don't want you to get lost in the, in the story. And maybe you can, but... Um, guys, you do understand, don't you? You do understand, I hope, that this parable is about us. There's a king... There's a slave who has a debt that is unpayable, and there's a meeting. At this point in the parable, in verse 26, the debtor the slave, never denying the size of his debt, puts in his plea for, for mercy, which was a pretty good move, sort of. He, he wants mercy, but not really. L let me show you what I mean. What he really wants is a second chance. He says to the owner in verse 26, or to the king, I will pay you everything. You see, he still thinks he can do it. What he's promising here is the impossible. But what he's saying in essence is, just give me some more time and I can solve this. I'll just work harder. Ladies and gentlemen, um, you, know, you, you know how many times I hear that a year? I probably hear it three or four times a year where something has happened in the life of somebody and they're under some small or great vague conviction of their wrongdoing. And they think like this in verse 26. They think like this slave. 
um, this slave who is going to launch a campaign for moral reform. And so folks sit in my office and they say, I, I, I'm telling you, I wonder how many times a year I hear this. They say, um, well, you know, um, something's happened. You know, the, the wife left or the kids are on drugs or, or I got a DUI or there's some kind of something that's gone on. And they say to me something like this. They say, you know, Dr. Young, we really need to get back in church. And, and I say, great, uh, you know, that's great. I hope you get back in church. What preacher would not want you to get back in church? But do you think that's going to solve this? Guys, people think like this fellow in verse 26, where he simply says, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to morally reform, and that'll fix it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work myself back into the favor of the king, and I'm going to do it by trying harder. And I'll pray some more. And I might throw in some money. The point of this parable, ladies and gentlemen, is that self-reformation is impossible. You know, Jeremiah says that. Can a, can a leopard change its spots by working harder? You know, guys, do you, you understand that that no amount of future obedience is going to correct your past disobediences. If you say, well, Dr. Young, I have determined that I'm not going to murder any more people. And I say, well, that's good to hear. But what about the people that you already murdered? Your debt. And my debt. It's unpayable because of the size of it and because of the nature of it. Ladies and gentlemen, this thing in the verse 26 is not laudable. This is the plea of the self-righteous. He's not yet seen the immensity of his debt, which explains, by the way, what you're going to see in the second half of the parable. Grace for this guy is still a foreign concept. He only asks for more time. So that I can pay you back all that I owe. I can do this. I'll just try harder. I'm going to have to get back in church. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the effort of the self-righteous. Now, quickly, we come to the king's response to all that. 
And it's in the king's response where we hear the gospel. The response of the king goes far beyond the the request of the slave. The slave asks for a second chance to pay his own debt by working harder. and And the king wipes away the debt. He forgave him the debt. The the, the slave receives far more than he had asked for or even hoped for. What he got is the very thing that he didn't deserve. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the New Testament calls grace. Let Let me make three observations and I'm done. First of all, I want you to notice that in verse 27, you're told that out of pity for him. You know, I looked up that Greek word, uh, pity, and it was, it was a strange word. I've never really seen it before, um, and it's even hard to pronounce, splankthon uh, or something like But anyway, it refers to like the bowels, the inner parts, you know. Um, here, here's the point. Out of the inner parts... Something on the inside of the king. Moved him. To forgive the slave. It was something about the king. Something about who the king is. That explains why the slave is forgiven. The, the, the hero of this story is not about a hard-working man who accomplished the impossible. The hero of this story is a king who, because of who he is, was not only willing, but was able to forgive the debt that was unpayable by the slave. That forgiveness... Extended to the slave has nothing to do with the slave's performance. Quite the contrary. It has nothing to do with who the slave is because his character is abundantly on display in this parable and his character is all bad. So the forgiveness that he got had nothing to do with who he was or what he did. The outcome is bound up in who this king is and what he's like. What could be more beautiful? Who could be more beautiful? You know, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, once said, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to condemn the world. You know, that's said by a man who understands the enormity of his debt. My performance will never earn forgiveness, the forgiveness that I need. It's in the king. 
Oh, the beauty of the king. The second thing that I want you to notice. Did you notice that, that Jesus is not in this parable? Did you notice that? He's not in this parable because my debt is not owed to him. In fact, Jesus is the payer of my debt. He's the payer, not the payee, or the one who gets the payment. I, I cannot pay for my present sin or my past sin or my future sin, but Jesus paid it. You know, we, we sing a song, and, and it, I love the song. It's a, it's a great hymn, and it goes like this. Jesus paid for most of it. No, 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 that's not how it goes. It goes, Jesus paid for a lot of it. It doesn't go like that. It goes like this. Jesus paid it all. All of it. Ladies and gentlemen, apart from... Jesus paying the debt. No debt is ever forgiven. On the basis of what Jesus did, the king has forgiven me. One more thing. What if God forgave like Peter only seven times? Or what if I could only bring 120 talents of gold? Or maybe even 666 talents of gold? Where would I be then? Well, there's a psalmist who answers the question for us. It's in Psalm 130, verse 8. And the psalmist says, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? You know the answer to that question? If thou shouldst mark, shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer is nobody. Nobody could stand, folks. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises unlimited forgiveness. It's one of the essential laws of the kingdom. Unlimited forgiveness. And that is the message that my soul longs to hear. Because I know of the sign of my debt. Guys, it was about seven years ago. It'll be seven years in October. October the 2nd of 2006. Um, a man by the name of Roberts. Charles Carl Roberts. He was 32 years old. He entered a, a one-room schoolhouse in the community of Nickel, Nickel Mine in Pennsylvania. And he, he, he let all the boys go. He lined up ten girls and he shot all ten of them and killed five in that Amish community. It was, it was tragic. And yet, the thing that captured the imagination of the world was not that five girls died. The thing that captured the imagination of the world was the forgiveness that was extended to this man's family by the Amish community. 
There was one man who said, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who did this. One Amish family comforted the Roberts family's wife and three kids. And one of the fathers there in the Amish community held on to the father of the murderer while he sobbed for over an hour. The Roberts family was visited, comforted, and a charitable fund was set up for the shooter's family. 30 Amish people, including some whose daughters had been shot, attended the funeral of Charles Carl Roberts. The wife wrote an open letter describing the love that she sensed and felt from the Amish community. One community spokesman said this, the Amish willingness to forgive vengeance does not undo the tragedy or pardon the wrong, but rather constitutes a first step towards a future that is more hopeful. What could be more beautiful than that? Who could be more beautiful than that? I'll tell you who. This king. This God is the consummate forgiver. And that's the message that my soul needs to hear. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will show us the great beauty of, of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. That what we have, because we belong to Christ, is the forgiveness that covers all our debt, our sins of the past and the present and even of the future. What could be more beautiful than a gospel who promises us unlimited forgiveness? Lord, for those who have not yet taken advantage of that gift, would you cause them to see that the thing that they need the most is not harder work. What they need is a Savior. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray.